Welcome to Unfuck Your Head. I am your host, Kat Jordan. It's time to take action, get out of bed, smell the new day, and unfuck your head. Hey guys, welcome to Live in Recovery Part 2. Previously on Live in Recovery Part 1, Ricard Elmore gave us his personal story. On this episode, Ricard gives us examples of how his process of humanizing people changes their lives. If you haven't already listened to Live in Recovery Part 1, stop what you're doing and listen to that episode first. You know, I, I love to thrive in life, to be able to move forward, to feel good, to make things happen. And, you know, I go into these situations where, you know, especially when I'm doing intervention, people are calling. It's usually an emergency. There's generally five or seven people involved and everybody wants to move fast when really we want to, you know, I start telling them, how long are you planning for? And what are you expecting to be the result? And what happens when a regression happens? You know, very close to 100% of the people that go to treatment have a regression, or some people even call it a relapse, right? Where yeah. you, you're you moving in one direction, and there's a, there's a pullback from whatever you're doing. And that regression is, is a part of most people processes. And because it's not really taught, when the regression happens, the system around them panics and enforces the regression to go further right. or the relapse to get deeper, right? right? As, as because when you're, you know, if, you know, your loved one has a regression or a relapse, your resiliency, or some people will call it boundaries, is, is that I love them and I know they're going to work this out, you know, because if all you have left is your love for your loved one, you know, you know, and this is one key point that I tell people is make sure that your loved one knows that you love them even that moment when you want to tell them that you don't because what you're what you're not loving is the effects of what they're consuming or the state that they're in they're being you have loved and continue to love maybe not some not some of the behaviors or the effects because not not all of the conflicts you get yourself into are going to be accepted and and resolvable by the people that are affected by it you know, you can go tell somebody you're sorry all they want to tell you that your sorries are fine, but stay out of my life. Right. And, you know, because, you know, it's fine that you're all cleaned up, ready to go. But the impact that you've had on me, I don't want to be around anymore. You know, and so you have to learn to accept that that was a part of your process. Right. And it's not always easy, but it's easier to teach people resiliency than for me than boundaries. Because, you know, again, boundaries can either stop or hold back. Um, things that need to make progress. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, are there any situations that you can imagine where um, a boundary would be more appropriate from your perspective, from the work that you do? Um, and, and like, what kind of circumstance would a more hard, rigid boundary be appropriate? Well, I think, a, a, you know, a, a, a clearly a boundary put in place is 
really something to support a goal. So if you, let's say, for instance, your boundary is that your your loved one is not allowed in the house that they're consuming. Yeah. And 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 it's raining outside and they're knocking on your door. What do you do? And and what where do you hold this boundary or how do you support the person that's outside suffering need to come in who's lied to you a million times? Um, are you are you ready for them to be dead in the morning outside of your garage Mm -hmm. or you're ready for them to be so freezing cold in the morning that they're willing to get the help you've been so desperately asking them to get and that's really going to be up to you at three o'clock in the morning so when you're having when you're having that boundary that you need to implement this is where your resiliency would come in is you get to be clear and and detach emotionally like the reality is i don't think he keeping them out in the cold is going to work. And it seems like he's a little bit better than he normally is. I'll put him in to sleep. And then we can talk about this in the morning because it's going to make me feel better. Right. Right. And so I think boundaries are really needed more so for physical and emotional or sexual abuse. Right. Where when you're being abused by somebody that is taking advantage of you and harming you. Right. That's very clear. It's, it's very important to have a clear boundary because the person generally that is abusing you will use their abuse as a manipulation to hurt you even further, right? So if you're being abused in any of these ways, then you clearly need to have a, uh, a boundary and then have the resiliency to support that as something that you can do, right? You know, because you can have a boundary, but then your emotional resiliency can start you start feeling bad or maybe I'm the reason why this person hit me or, you know, you're right. We were a little over the edge and I didn't want to, but I originally did, but I changed my mind. So it's okay that you pushed yourself on me anyway. You know, all of those justifications for the harm that's done for you is is really how people get into more harmful situations because they're drawn back to people that are willing to treat them that way. Right. So you want to help these people have boundaries because, you know, there's more harm to be had if you don't help them understand what how how boundaries can be healthy for their life and for their relationships around them. Absolutely, and and it really gives me pause to um, just how imperative it is that when we are talking about providing, you know, for me, I, I refer to it as treatment, providing treatment to people who are struggling to incorporate and involve their family, whether it's a chosen family, their biological family, their friend support network, because they in themselves require so much more understanding and work for themselves in order to help this other person um, stay in long-term recovery. And, you know, it's talked about, it's mentioned, um, there's Al-Anon, there's Alateen, like there are certainly steps happening within our field to incorporate uh, family members, though I don't think it's happening, well I know it's not happening at the rate or at the consistency that is really required. Is that something that you incorporate in your intervention of like ensuring that the people that you are working with have a support group, whether family or friends, that they in themselves are doing work and they in themselves are capable of holding a boundary and also the resiliency that's necessary to support that person? 
Yeah, we mostly do that in the beginning when people call. We 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 go through treatment strategy, a, a planning and strategy protocol, to actually get you or your loved one to the treatment provider with the best support possible and start planning towards the solution before you engage in treatment. Because a lot of times people get into this panic, I need to get my loved one help, and then within 24 hours they're in a panic, they get their loved one and help, they haven't planned about all of these long-term effects that we're aware of. Right. So you, you, most of the, the loved ones that are around, you know, for the people that don't have any family members, you know, it's, it's a different perspective, especially, or when you have family members that are not willing to participate, you know, I have, yeah. I have people that I've worked with for years that are in my coaching platform because we moved away from the language. Like when they go see their therapist, their psychologist, their psychiatrist, or their sponsor, they're going to see those people, but I'm their coach. Originally, they're uh, transformational interventionist to walk through the door with a solution instead of you are the problem. Right. And understanding, you know, complex diagnosis. What we know is the family is so effective, especially with complex mental health. You know, right. sometimes you have a person who's threatening their mother's lives and, you know, threatening to put stuff in their drinks and all these different kinds of things. So the, the family's traumatized. And then when you have a family that's already broken up, that, you know, has, a, a, you know, a separated mother and father and siblings and the whole family's been broken up, it's hard to really get into deep-rooted uh, um family system stuff, you more have to talk to the individual about honoring their loved one's processes, but really not looking to them to resolve it for them. Because yeah. it's nice that we all need to get into family systems, but when you have a 30-year-old kid or a 28-year-old kid and a separation of two different step-parents and everybody's off, you know, not available for that kind of care, <laughs> right? Because th- then you then you get this one person is, oh, you're the drug addict, and now I got to be here pointing out all the stuff I've done wrong for the last forty years. Right, when and that really, person's it, not in a place to. You don't want to bring that kind of uh, family member in on this situation because they're going to do more harm than good. Right. Right. So, so depending, you know, so so not always is the family, um, um, you know, theoretically it would be nice to bring the whole family system in, but realistically, and you know, like what we tell is, how long do you want to work? You know, like I told, you know, I'm telling everybody that is in my coaching platform this year, what's your 2030 plan? Where are you going to be at 2030? How are we going to get back to the information that you wrote down and what does it look like? Right. Because we're now not talking about whether you have a bipolar disorder or you were possibly schizoaffective or schizophrenic or, or you were, you were, you know, manic depressive or, you know, you're hardcore heroin addict or, you're, you're an alcoholic that had all these diagnoses with all these pains. But when you work with somebody for three or four years who now can move their arms, that can talk, that are no longer in all of those stages, we, we see more people change towards the better by having a planning and strategy protocol in the beginning that includes their family. So we don't pressure everybody to come together who's not going to come together. Right. Right. And then, and then have a group with a whole other group of people saying, you know, it's really important with family systems and then your family doesn't show up, but you're in treatment. And then they try to back out of how they said how you really get better is only through family systems. Well, right. I'll tell you what, that's not the only way you get better. Yeah, it's not just Most a blanket statement gotten, of family systems. It's like real true connection 
with people who can actually sure. support you through this process, who can hold these boundaries mm-hmm. and have the resiliency and have their own mental and emotional stability to be present for you for that, um, which is a hundred percent necessary. Yeah. But you know, we, we see that happen a lot because, you know, we learn from our environment. Right. So here we are in our environment, you know, we're being taught how to respond to somebody pulling out in front of us in a car. We're, you know, learning how to respond when our family members are under pressure and we watch how they think and how they blink and how they move. And you can see family systems, how, you know, children and family will mirror each other in tone and affect and mm-hmm. all of these different things. You sort of say, well, yeah, I know, I know that how that is your, you know, mother or father or that your brother or sister or something like this. So, you know, a lot of the times when I'm working with people, I'm not expecting them to be any further than they are now. And to build rapport is the first thing, <clears throat> you know, and it's not always easy to build rapport with somebody that is not interested, you know, especially with intervention, you know, you know, the intervention model that I'm engaged with is really looking at what's the best solution to move you towards a goal. Generally, a family member will say, I don't want them to do all of these things. So we go through a role play of, of all of the excuses I would come up with to counter their justification of this thing to see if they can actually hold the boundary instead of ex- expecting them to say, you can't do all of this and then find out they're not going to follow through with any of it. Right. And then we start clearing. Well, right. So from the beginning, we start engaging people with realistic stuff instead of this theory that you're going to be able to engage all these boundaries and what you haven't been able to do up to this point anyway. So now all of a sudden, unless you are totally emotionally disconnected and unavailable through um, connecting with the person emotionally, you're most likely not going to be able to engage in adhering to these boundaries. And then you're going to feel like you failed them by not being able to hold a boundary and, you know, all of these other parameters. But, you know, when I'm working with people, we get into a language of success because I'm, I'm guaranteed that I could help people change their lives for the better. And people say, well, how could you guarantee it? I said, cause if it's not working, you should leave. <laughs> you know, it's pretty, it's a pretty yeah. simple process, right? right? If we're, if, if, if you're making progress and you have a situation that's really complicated and I can start moving into solution, you can start feeling that solution. That's your proof right there. If it starts not working, I should first be able to uh, recognize that and refer you out to somebody that is better suited to help your case. I just had a case come in yesterday that we recommended that they go somewhere else because of, um, basically the, um, the girl that was involved had been traumatized by a male and the male um, happened to be the same structure as I was. So I thought it would be more valuable to have a woman go in there and engage with her instead of me trying to pressure her to look at me and receive the information from me. To me, um, maybe that could have been the only way that could help her, but because of my experience, I think it would be more valuable to have a woman go in there and somebody that could have the compassion and the understanding and maybe even not introduce me because there's so many similarities to the, the person that's abusing her, just physical features, right? the way you look. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that to me just highlights such a, a level of ethics and truly understanding of uh, the work that you're doing. I, I really have to applaud you on that because I think a lot of um, therapists and coaches um, are not necessarily as quick to recognize that and say, no, I'm not a good fit. This is not 
going to be in the best interest of my client, I'm going to refer her to somebody who is going to be able to align with her, especially with rapport from the get-go. You know, because, I mean, yep. enough research has shown that the rapport is one of the most, if not the single most important aspect of the work that we do. And and so I'm grateful that you were able to see that and then her story will be able to shift more swiftly in having, you know, that different kind of experience. Yeah, that, that right kind of story. And, and in the same way with treatment centers, you know, Yes. We know that the client mostly has rapport with their treatment practitioner. And so the client is mostly motivated towards an individual relationship that was the driver towards their commitment. And that comes down to an individual treatment practitioner. So when I'm looking, when I'm uh, touring treatment centers, I don't really listen to the marketing people. I want to go talk to the clinical team. Right. And the people that are maybe the lowest on the totem pole, as they call it, that just got there, or maybe the driver, right? And have right. a conversation. Back when I was uh, running sober livings, it was $110 a week to be in the sober living. And there were six to 10 people in the house. And if you couldn't afford it, we'd send you back to the food bank. Or when I started treatment, I was making $19,000 a year. And when I moved up to $26,000 and got into a management position, I had lost my mind. I was so happy. But now here I am these years later, and I was thinking that that was a different time of, of lifestyle and, and where we are living. You know, I didn't, I had my housing paid for, my food paid for. I was, my family was taking care of that stuff for me. And, it, and that, that's not really true. I moved in with my grandmother. My grandfather died to take care of her. And so I had my housing and stuff taken care of because instead of putting her in a home, uh, we all agreed that it would be better for me to move in with her because it would be the best for her lifestyle and it would allow me to honor some of the life that they gave me that uh, without them had I think that I would have not made it. Yeah. Um, their love and their compassion, their belief in me was really something that I had an opportunity to give a little bit back before they had passed on. So I had the opportunity to to get in there and give back some of because, you know, I had, I had caused a lot of hardship to the people that loved me because I couldn't really... I was trying to express to you how bad I was feeling instead of understanding I could let the, the pain go. I hadn't had that content yet. It reminds me of what you had said uh, earlier about sitting down with somebody and just holding and honoring that space of, of this, this human in front of you. If we are able to hold compassion and understanding and love, I like to say unconditionally, knowing that there are conditions, um, Sure. But loving through and despite somebody's pain and how somebody has dealt with their pain, understanding that mm-hmm. it's that your behaviors or that other people's behaviors were not necessarily ill intent and malicious, but rather in an effort to stop the pain. And I think if we can see that and understand that and hold compassion and have love for people, that in of itself can be tremendously healing and tremendously powerful and having that place where okay if I can have this experience with whether it's somebody I just met or my grandparents or my family or my friends then there is a level of hope that I can Mm -hmm. improve because despite all of the the hardship I've experienced and despite all of the pain I've caused to others they still love me so I must still exist. There still must be that deep internal sense of individuality that is of value. 
um, and that should be expressed. And I think that that to me is extraordinarily important in recovery. Now, is that something that you guys directly share in in the interventions, or is that just in terms of like more of the approach and the process? Those conversations are pretty short as far as relating to people because you know instead of getting into my direct experiences because i still at this point don't couldn't imagine somebody could believe the depth of suffering that i have been through emotionally inside of myself and because i know that so well i know i have no idea how deep your suffering has been i would rather honor us moving past that and allowing it to be released from you than try to detail how i've gotten to mine you know, I'm engaging the person into calming their state and right. looking into the solution. Right. You know, it depends on where they come from um, or, you know, what I learned in the family or what I learned in the what we call uh, pre-intervention. That was, an, that was another thing is not everybody needs an intervention. Some people need a conversation. Yeah. And a conversation can wake you up to the solution. So... The intervention doesn't necessarily need to be this thing that you imagine in your mind that is also can also be traumatic, especially if it's built for a particular audience. You know, like sometimes the, the TV show that you see where people are doing these interventions, I 98% of the time or 99% of the time, whatever the number is, um, don't have those experiences because we go in towards the solution. Right. No, we're not thriving in conflict anymore. Right. We're not looking for the sickness sickness to protrude itself. And I'm, you know, in environments where that systemically is already in place, I'm able to go in because of my experience and relate to those same people. Because those same people that are living in this lifestyle, they call it respect. You know, you, you need to respect me. Well, when you're in a healthy living, you honor people, right? And there's these two similarities that come from a different perspective, but they're you know, for all intents and purposes are almost meaningly of the same thing, you know, to respect and to honor is to appreciate and, and, and move forward with somebody in a good way. Each one of those different populations of people, you know, changes my clothes. Sometimes when I'm wearing a suit and tie or, or jacket and vest, you, people can't hear you. Right. Because you look like you're somebody that they can't connect with. Right. You know, so if I'm in that attire, I say, look, I'm, excuse me, but I don't feel like I'm getting all stuffed up with this jacket on. I don't mean to be uncomfortable about it. He's like, yeah, I wish you'd take that jacket off too. Right. Said, well, I'll take the jacket out, right? Right. And, or, you know, so, so we think about all these different things and, and think about how to value people and give them the best support. Like, you know, how can I bring you something you can say yes to, especially when it comes to mental health? You know, I'll ask simple questions. What kind of food do they like? What kind of soda, chips, and do they smoke cigarettes? Because I would love to bring them a pack of cigarettes. They say, well, we don't want them to smoke. You're telling me that they're ingesting heroin. Can you relax for a minute and let's get this show moving, right? <laughs> because not everybody's ready to let go of all of their consumption. This is Absolutely. why you're asking for them to get help because they're, they're dying. So, you know, I'm more being thoughtful about them. But, you, you know, you can't just go get that and expect that to work. And I have all kinds of stories around how, you know, I have one long story that I won't get into the details, but this guy wanted a, um, uh, um, an orange Fanta. And after we finally got him and we were in this intervention and there was 10 people in the room I had never met before because the way it went was not the way it was planned. 
And, and we did the intervention anyway, and I got lost in the middle of it, but I had put that Fanta in the freezer to get it cold. And I said, I told everybody, stop. And everybody like stopped. I said, one moment. And I got up and I went to the freezer and I brought this thing out. And I said, I have been carrying this around for the last two days because I got told the only thing that they could really think that you would like to have is this thing. And so I just want to just honor this for a minute and give you the opportunity. And he smiled at me and took a drink. And I said, but after all that, can I get a little love? And he handed it back to me so I could take a drink. And I didn't really take a drink because I wasn't sure exactly what was going on. Um, you know, I sort of handed back. I said, no, I'm good. I just wanted to share that with you. And that just broke the whole thing open. And he said, you don't, we don't need to do all this, man. Let's get in the car. And we got in the car and went to treatment. <laughs> right. That was, that was, that was the deal. That right? was it. And that was a that was a pre-framed structure from the beginning of our treatment strategy protocol to start building in tools of success from the beginning <laughs> that that most people might not want to consider, but it's a part of the process when somebody's mind and their being is is so out of congruence or balance that they can't think or blink straight. You know, they're all over the place, and if you can give them something that they could work with, you know, you have much more. Uh, opportunity to help them towards the solution that way. Yeah, and and what I'm hearing in that is that you are, again, recognizing and honoring this person as an individual. You you value this. You appreciate this. This is something that you like. I want to respect and honor that. It's so so simple and such an expression of appreciation for the individual by giving them something that they like. That is, to me, the very fabric of what we need which is connection right like if we are interacting with people regardless of you know if it's in treatment obviously it's more effective and more valuable in when we're working with people who need to go to treatment but if we're engaging with each other on a level of that kind of connection as simple as it is it is saying to the other person I see you I hear you not in the context of what you've done wrong, but in the context of uh, like, just as another person in front of me. And mm-hmm. I think that that can alleviate so much of that pressure that you're talking about and so much of the, the angst that comes with, you're the alcoholic, you're the drug addict, you're the person that needs to get, to get help. And, it, and, and that can be such a powerful moment from a, for a human to connect to another human. And, and ultimately that's just all we're, we're looking for right is to fill Mm. that that pain that we're experiencing with authentic connection with another person yeah we find that a lot when you know when we're in the middle of an intervention process where that wish they wouldn't have because they're dead now. And I've had family members keep their uh, loved ones in the house because they didn't want to throw them on the street that they wish they would because those are dead now. Right. You know, I've got family members that loved ones went to treatment and ditched out on treatment and died around the corner. And But most of the people are living. <laughs> people focus on all the people that are dying, but really, if you look at how many people are living in recovery every day versus dying every day, nobody focuses 
you know, we focus on the solution because we, the people that we're working with are thriving in their recovery, you know, resolving things better in in inner family. You know, what, what I'm hopeful to teach is people before they get married and before they have children to have a, a seminar around really engaging in your higher self and expecting you to accomplish that, not to represent or replay a story that was given to you that you're supposed to move forward. Right. You know, we come from these systems like this was the way I was raised. This is the way I'm supposed to be. I'm sorry. We're not in that time anymore. Right. We're not, we, we haven't been in that time for, for some time. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, it just reminded me of, um, you know, I grew up in a family where alcohol was part of our culture. Um, we both have German mm-hmm. and Irish ancestry and um it was honored in that way of you know at the end of a hard day or if we're celebrating christmas or some other holiday um we're gonna we're gonna drink and it wasn't always to the point of intoxication or anything of that nature but um in carrying that as part of my identity into my marriage it, it became my identity of honoring my family of at the end of the day, I'm going to have a glass of wine or two. Mm-hmm. It became uh, problematic because I was then using it to numb out the stress of the day. And had I had a conversation prior to marriage or prior to having children about do I need to honor my culture and my family and 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 all of that in that way or or can i really be more progressive in saying consumption's not necessarily a tradition that is valuable to be carried forward so i love the idea that you are looking to even more preventative measures so can you can you share a little bit more about like what that looks like in terms of how you provide that? I was working with a family out of Wisconsin, which I think is the number one drinking capital of the United States, the amount of people that consume alcohol. Yeah. And it's kind of hard when everybody in your life is consuming. Right. To go back into an environment that that was so enriched in that protocol. I know people that drink one drink a day and have been doing that for 50 years and their whole life might go out of balance if you take that one drink away. Is it alcoholism? Are they're now in their, I think, probably early 70s? And don't don't drink other than that. And how's that one drink? It's a part of like what you're this fabric of their being of what you teach other people. But people have different effects from consumption. So we now know that just because that was a, a family system thing where we all did this particular thing, like some people come from families where they want to have a holiday together and come from two different families that have different kinds of holidays, that is the same sort of thing as drinking, right? Is Do we match at the rate that we thought we were going to match? And, you know, most, most people learn that after the fact. No, Never are they really given the information before, but they're also not interesting, intentionally seeking out, hey, maybe I don't know what I'm doing and I'm not a parent yet, or I haven't been married and I'm predisposed to thinking what my marriage is going to be because I try to focus around to replicate what I think it should be, right? right? And then all of a sudden, all of these other things start showing up that we weren't expecting or planning towards and the relationship starts breaking. 
asking out, right? And every relationship is going to have that process I just explained, whether you're a long-term relationship that's going to make it or you're going to decide that it's better suited that you're not together. Right. Either way, you're going to have regressions and breakdowns in this relationship. It's going to be happy and exciting. It's going to be sad and depressed. It's going to be grateful and thankful. It's going to be resentful. You're going to have all of these emotional states through any strong relationship that you're going to be in. And the, the, the best thing is to be into a healthy, strong relationship with self. So you can, you can teach healthy relationships, including um, not getting into the conflict of why the relationship didn't work any longer, you know, learning from that moving forward. And I, you know, through my own relationships and through helping so many people, um, especially people that have a whole society versus consumption of how to live a life in recovery. And in my belief, every human being wants to be in recovery. 100%. Because recovery yeah. is, is, is not, not about... Um, not having things. Recovery is about living a better life and having things, right. not letting things hold you back is a process of recovery. Absolutely. All of our recovery has come from different components. You know, we need more of us to come together, actually. Even if, Kat, if all of us got together right now, this is one of the concerns I have with some of the big intervention uh, companies is each intervention, you know, like I have the transformational model of intervention and there's these other models of intervention that are out there. I have been asking for us to all come together for years because we're already short on the amount of people that can help. So, so to separate it even further, giving these different belief systems to different people, you know, it used to be that the, the disease model abstinence-based was the only way to engage somebody, but we all have access to content. That's not the truth anymore. Right. Most people that get treatment are not necessarily going to have an addiction or, or a mental health condition for the rest of their lives. It's possible that they can. In the same way, it's possible that they don't. I think that that is such an important message that everyone needs to hear. When somebody's getting help, maybe they are deep in a addiction. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're an addict and have the disease of addiction for the rest of their life. Well, in that same aspect, to be in denial about your consumption uh, can be conflictive because if if you keep consuming at a rate that's harming yourself or others or effectively adversely affecting yourself or others and you're denying it by still consumption till, still consuming people call that addiction right you're having these adverse effects and and even though you're having these adverse effects you're still consuming still doing it. Right. Um, just because just because that's the case doesn't mean that you have an addiction for the rest of your life I'm saying that out loud, so I'll remind myself that I'm not the person that was traumatized. I'm the person that is healing. I'm not the person that got pain that way. I'm not the person, you know, all of the stuff that happened to me is not my identity. All the stuff that I am doing now has become my identity, which is more around health and well-being. The language of humanity has changed and not by very much. Yeah. And now there's this deep-rooted diagnosis system where it, every, every emotional state can be diagnosed. And you can have a condition just for being a child yeah. and having a reaction to your environment. All of a sudden you can have a, your own diagnosis, which, you know, at some point is, is, is really needs to be readjusted. But again, I'm just here helping the people that are in front of me. That's a pretty big book and a pretty big system. And instead of getting caught up in all of the language that, that is better suited for the physicians, I more engage with the pe people in a more, I would say, I would not humane, that's not the right word, 
but more connect on a direct level about look you know you can call use all that language what you want but the accountability for right now is really the only moment that we have so what can we do moving forward yeah. right and engage people in a process of solution versus conflict you know yeah and i think it's in, in incredibly valuable because while you might not be on the other end of like reworking the dsm you are most certainly causing waves within the communities by engaging in your clients in this very hopeful and healing way. Um, and I say clients, and, the, and then in my mind, I'm like, but you're doing that yourself. You're modeling that for your children. You're modeling that in your relationships. Um, and I think it's really valuable for us who are in the field to remember that um, we don't have to necessarily be on the cutting edge of reworking all of the terminologies to heal, but that we are most certainly doing a lot of good work in these smaller communities of which we are creating and and sharing. Yeah. And you know, that's why I'm so grateful and so honored to be able to to do this podcast because um, I'm we're able to then share this narrative and share this perspective to whomever wants to listen to it and then share it and share it and share it and and to me that is so powerful and gives me a lot of hope you know where we don't need to pathologize our human behaviors and 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 in doing that remove the stigma and allow us to feel that we are certainly capable to cope and certainly capable to heal because what we are coping with and what we are healing um, is just human nature. Yeah, and, that was wonderfully said. Thanks. Yeah, the, yeah. The, and that, when you're saying that, brought up the resiliency. Yes. You know, where, you know, that's where that resiliency comes in is actually being able to know that I can get through this and it can be okay versus this dooming and glooming condition that may or may not ever go away. Yeah. You know, start teaching them, you know, get out of the language of the DSM. That's for the system of insurance and licensing and all of that and get into the language of transformation and the human being in front of you that you're hopeful that for generations to come, your engagement would cause them to live better, healthier lives. And real quick on that, Kat, I'm, you know, I'm working on my doctorate degree right now and I'm looking at systemic systems from an evolutional perspective. Really? Um, and I'm look, yeah, from a, a perspective that, uh, you know, the Homo erectus and the Neanderthal and, and the Homo sapien. And the Homo sapien basically found fire and, and became the top of the food chain. I'm, I'm now seeing a system where the Homo sapien is losing its foothold and it's frantic. And this is where we're at in humanity. I, I'm because that I'm, same transformation is happening. Yes. I am so thrilled that you w remembered to, to say that because... I am in this mindset, and I've been in this mindset for some time, but it's becoming more and more apparent as I'm doing this work, where I will look at a situation of like a response or reaction, and I immediately go to this, this place in my mind of where was this an adaptive tool evolutionarily? And, sure. you know, my background's in neuroscience and psychology. I certainly took a class on anthropology and evolution, but I, I think it's really valuable for us to better understand what we're experiencing now and, the, and the, the pain that we're experiencing now in the broader context of 
evolution in the broader context of why do we have these responses both automatically um, and, and thoughtfully that may still actually be tied to um, a, a very old adaptation that, that was required of us to survive, you know, thousands of years ago. Um, so I can't wait to hear more from you about that and what you're experiencing and what you're learning because I can only imagine that coupled with what you've already been working on that, that things are going to become more clear and more hopeful oh, and less it, pathological. It yeah. Yep. It, it, it's been, it's been, yeah, I'm, I'm getting really excited. If I was better at writing, the book would be done by now. But I, gotta tell you, I think I failed English five times now, but you know, and that was the other thing that we learned is that if I'm focused on one direction for so long, I'm probably going to be short in some other direction. Yeah. You know, for, for, you know, so you have, you have to get the kind of support that is best suited for you. Right. And I've moved to a position now is there's only really only two ways to think. It's either a solution or a problem-oriented focus. Right. 90% of the, my day, what kind of thought process I, is it a problem or is it a solution? Because most people spend their time in the problem. Absolutely. Talking the problem, enforcing the problem, engaging the problem, communicating right. the problem. They'll call people, talk about the problem. And their initial focus isn't on the solution, nor are they even in consideration. Right. So if you can move people into the solution as a thought process, Two choices. It's like you know, it's fifty-fifty. I went, um, and if you could, if you can chunk down to having those two processes, you can eliminate a lot of the conflict and take away a lot of the the power in the conflict itself by saying, okay, here's what's happening. Here's what I would like it to be. And most of the people, you know this. Most of the people, you say, what do you want exactly? <laughs> They're, their eyes are in the headlights. They're like, uh, uh, no clue. They don't even know. They don't even know. Right. 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 And and so and so you say so before we move any further, let's get clear on what you want, because if we can't get that clear. Then how are we supposed to plan? Right. Right. And that really changes the system of how people engage over a period of time. And yeah, I'm looking, I'm working with an artificial intelligence company to look at how to better access communication protocols. The the real thing is for us to have an automated coaching program. That is, you know, $40 a year for anybody that wants to join that they can have their own personal coach communicate with them, engage with them and cause them to be in a state that can move forward instead of being so conflicted. So my my plan is to have ac people to have access to communication like I've gotten now earlier in life, maybe in maybe in their teens, maybe in their, you know, even younger. Yeah. Right. To start offering people solutions before the problem, you know, quote unquote, before the problem gets there Absolutely. or offering people, you know, how many times have I been on the phone with people that are calling me that that need an intervention and we get into a conversation and we start realizing the intervention is on themselves because what they want out of their loved one is something that they're wishing their loved one can be rather than who their loved ones are. Right. Back to the, back to the same thing, just because you're consuming doesn't mean that you have a disease that's going to last for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, Ricard, yeah. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story and for being the human that you are, really. Story aside, just as you said, like really coming from a position of solution-oriented and being hopeful 
emulating that in your own self and then giving that to others, I, I am just beyond grateful for that. We need more people like you in this world and keep spreading the word, keep doing what you're doing and learning. And, um, I will most definitely have to have you back on if you're willing. Oh yeah. I'm looking forward to it, Kat, for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much. Any last words that you would like to share with our audience or, um, any specific information that you'd like to give them to reach out to you if they have any questions or if they want to know more about what you do? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I really would like people to have access to better content to improve their lives. Yeah. And, you know, if there's people that need help, you know, get a hold of me, ricardelmore.com, R-I-C-K-A-R-D-E-L-M-O-R-E.com, or at my coach, Ricard. Um, we, you know, we have a coaching program, so you don't need to have a sickness or a disease in order to get help with bettering your life. And really just to have access to this podcast for people to come back and to share this podcast so more people can have access to content and information. You know, hopefully we'll have some stuff on our site that will be free for the, for people that want to engage and have access to information. And as always, if you have a loved one or yourself that needs help finding care, we'd love to hear from you and help you live a better life. Thank you, Ricard. Thank you so much. And we'll definitely have your links up on uh, unfuckyourhead.org so that people who are listening to the podcast can easily find you. Thank you for listening. Join me on the next episode of Unfuck Your Head as we continue to build a community where understanding human health is at the forefront of real change. Don't forget to hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram at Unfuck Your Head Podcast. You can also check out upcoming podcasts, my blog, and ways to contribute to our mission by visiting our website at unfuckyourhead.org. Fuck your head